healthcare's quality improvers in the U.S. and elsewhere trace their roots to many sources, chief among them the architects of improvement science, whose ideas first took hold in manufacturing and in some other industries. Patient safety got some of its earliest lift and knowledge by looking at the airlines and other sectors that have designed for reliability and zero defects for quite a while. So it's definitely new thinking to consider what do social movements and community organizing offer to the cause of better, safer, more reliable patient care. And don't we already know who the leaders are by their titles, such as CEO, CMO, CNO, PSO? We're going to be doing some disruptive thinking on this edition of WIHI, learning from two people who believe in the improvement community's agenda, so much so that they want to offer tools and strategies that they think could make the profound changes necessary more widely embraced and sustained. So welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. This is offered every other week and also for your convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan, and also IHI's Director of Communications. With this edition of WIHI, I hope to learn as much as you will, our participants. Sometimes it's hard to take a step back from the immediate work at hand and widen the view to take in some new strategic ideas. I think we're in for a treat with Marshall Gans and Kate Hilton as our guides today. So on the phone is Kate Hilton. Now, she has multiple intriguing titles. She's Principal in Practice for Leading Change at the Hauser Center for Nonprofit Organizations at Harvard University, also Leadership Coach for an NHS campaign in England, and Director of Organizing for Health. I think all that will make a lot more sense to you in just a few minutes. Welcome, Kate. Here in the studio with me is Marshall Gans. He's a lecturer in public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, author of the book Why David Sometimes Wins, Leadership, Organization, and Strategy in the California Farm Workers Movement. Marshall Gans's theories and stories of change are truly legendary, and they are used all over the world. Welcome, Marshall. Thanks, Madge. All right. Terrific. I um, also want to just acknowledge in the studio today we have a nice guest who wanted to listen in in person. Uh, Tanya Chermark is here from Harvard Vanguard uh, Medical Association. So Medical Associates, excuse me. Glad to have you here too. So um, I, you know, there's there's so many ways one could come at this. I had a very interesting time uh, talking with Marshall and Kate about the ideas uh, which are really evolving, I think, uh, daily. And I think that's what's sort of exciting right now is uh, an, an opportunity to sort of get in on something as it evolves and see what you can maybe contribute to the thinking and perhaps take away as well. So I'm going to start with Marshall. Um, Marshall, you delivered one of the main keynotes at IHI's forum last December. Tanya here remembers that speech well. That was her first IHI forum. My memory when I was standing on the sidelines was suddenly seeing several thousand people whip out scraps of paper, napkins, whatever they had, scrounging for pens to make sure they could take notes uh, during your keynote. Uh, That doesn't always happen. So there you were talking your life story, uh, what it... uh, the farm workers movement, uh, growing up in California, civil rights, political campaigns, and it was amazing in some ways to watch all of that sort of weave in and bob among the audience there, and people were clearly seeing something that kind of resonated for the work. So uh, 
I wanted to see if you could shed some light on that for what's your attraction uh, to what all these healthcare improvers are up to and what do you think is the attraction the other way? Well, it was a revelation to me too, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that whole experience. And uh, it, it caused me a lot of reflection because uh, uh, organizing and, and organizing social movements, leadership in social movements, uh, is a lot about the uh, intersection of uh, of challenge and hope, uh, or or as the Protestant theologian Walter Brueggemann describes it, uh, prophetic imagination, meaning uh, the energy that occurs at the intersection of criticality, which is a clear view of the world's pain, of its limitations, of its suffering but coupled with hope, a sense of the world's possibilities and promise and joy. And that's what drives social movements, is that kind of encounter, the combination of challenge and hope. And in meeting the people at, at the gathering last last year, I realized that uh, healers uh, encounter the world's pain daily and have to be sources of hope daily. And that creates a powerful potential moral and political and organizational energy, especially if you feel either crushed or not supported by the institutions that should be enabling you to do your work as a healer, your calling as a healer. And so for me, it, it opened my eyes to a, an enormous, uh, what I think of as a change constituency, uh, which is people in this world. Uh, I don't think it's only in this world. I think people who educate face a similar challenge. I think those who care about the environment face similar challenges. And I think we're groping toward ways to create the kinds of institutions and practices that enable us to fulfill this kind of calling. Okay, thanks. You're listening to Marshall Gans. Uh, this is WIHI, and we're really talking about uh, the roots, uh, some maybe some new roots uh, for healthcare improvement in uh, social movements and community organizing. Kate Hilton is on the phone, joining us from South Carolina today. Uh, Kate, what brings you into the heart of reinventing healthcare? Is this been a kind of logical progression from the work you've been doing? Uh, some aha moments for you? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, for me, I feel like I'm at the intersection of my calling in life. I grew up um, as a child of two healers. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and my mom was a Franciscan nun uh, at the hospital working as a nurse that was run by nuns in Madison, where she met my dad, who um, was a surgeon there. And lucky for me, uh, <laughs> they got together and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so my life, um, you know, I grew, grew up in that community and in their uh, challenging, um, you know, improving quality for the patients, um, improving the way in which their teams are working together, uh, teaching residents, teaching nurses, working with our uh, local hospice care in particular. And so in part, you know, this is in my DNA, in, in my environmental upraising. Um, but my, my own track um, led me... Uh, pre-med, of course, um, uh, but instead took a divergent track into leadership. Uh, at, at the time, I found um, a choice in working in uh, a Kenya, a uh, Maasai community, where development was going on, and I was looking at how people's spiritual and religious beliefs um, affect their resource choices in community. And we, we are um, asking those same questions in the healthcare sector all the time. How do our values, um, based on being healers, but also other values that um, that come our way, whether it's around economics, um, whether it's around uh, just getting through the administrative tasks that have been assigned to us, et cetera, 
um, in getting our, our work done, how do they, what, how do they um, converge in terms of the choices we make on an individual and then a team level in terms of the outcomes for our patients, for one another, um, to achieve high quality care? And, um, and so my, you know, my landing here is largely thanks to having worked with Marshall um, and working in leadership, but being invited by uh, Marshall and colleagues at uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, um, at Rethink Health Group, and uh, now in this Organizing for Health project, as well as our work with the National Health Service in England to try to apply some of this work in leadership and organizing um, as a methodology for change, as a theory of change. In healthcare, so it's it's both from um, from those places as well as also as a patient, and I think all of us can relate to our own experience as patients um, receiving healing from from our our care providers and from our families and our friends, and um, and in part I think my own experience as a um, a young person who for a long time had an undiagnosed disease and had to develop a healthcare team around my care. Uh, at a certain juncture, really also on a personal level, um, made me aware of the concerns we all face in terms of getting good care. Thanks, Kate Hilton, joining us uh, from uh, South Carolina. So, you know, um, I think I'm going to ask this of both of you, and maybe I'll go back to Marshall right now. Um, I was very gratified by the response uh, we got uh, to uh, this particular WIHI, in part because people are very busy. There's also a lot of theories of change out there. And um, a lot of people are kind of looking like, you know, show me the money in a sense. I'm looking for stuff that's tangible and do like doing some deep thinking and imagining um, and yet really often need uh, things that they can even show to others that they're really working on. So we've got people here. Uh, who are working on lowering costs, improving quality, ensuring safety, reducing infections. They're trying to figure out better ways to discharge patients. So I'm going to ask you this big kind of balloon of a question, Marshall, which is kind of what does community organizing uh, have to do with all that? You started to map that out at the top, but uh, make some other connections for us. Well, I think think that's what we're going to figure out. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I don't think we – we don't have an answer here. Yeah. This is really an exploration. Um, I think what the organizing approach brings is we seem to be stuck in terms of how to create certain kinds of public goods, which I would include health. health, If we think in terms of a healthy community as opposed to simply healthy individuals, there's a different perhaps perspective on it, just as we have to think about an educated community or an environmentally uh, safe community. Um, And we seem to be stuck in two models of how you do that. One is a hierarchy, uh, where you you know you create a bureaucracy that provides services, and services are then provided to more or less passive recipients or consumers of those services. The other is markets, where you create market incentives, and then you create this sort of customer domain out there of providers of service. So you have a client model and a customer model. Now, the idea of organizing is built out of neither clients nor customers, but out of constituents or citizens, where the idea is not to receive a service or buy a product, but to engage with others in the collaborative work of committing resources and discerning purposes for those resources and then translating them into action. That's what we do in organizing. And so it's an effort to see if we can find a ground, a space between markets and hierarchies, 
of people actually working together to collaboratively bring their resources to bear on solving some of these major challenges. Um, I mean, we think of leadership in the context of organizing as being about uh, taking responsibility for enabling others to achieve purpose under conditions of uncertainty. Uh, just So there's about responsibility. It's not leadership as divahood. It's <laughs> leadership as a, a relational engagement. It's purposeful. It's focused on others. And the defining condition is uncertainty. In other words, when the machine all works, then what do you need leadership for? The reality is, though, that the machine often doesn't work, that it's contradictory, it's ambiguous. And what that means is that then developing our capacity to exercise leadership becomes something not just the CEO, some corporation ought to know, but if we're actually going to deal with these problems, we have to think about how to distribute the capacity for leadership throughout an organization or a community. And so we focus on five specific practices uh, of relationship building, of, uh, of motivation around shared narrative, uh, of strategizing, of creating appropriate structures, and of translating it into measurable uh, action. And, and through these five practices, creating structures capable of doing this. Now, whether it's in a context of an electoral campaign where we create leadership teams all over the place to mobilize communities to turn out and vote, um, or in the context of an environmental challenge, what we're exploring is how that can play out in this context. And uh, that's what we're learning. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, uh, it's, I, I have to say the foundation of all this, though, is the foundation of, of seeing values as what it is that actually moves people. Uh-huh. In other words, right. not as abstract intellectual concepts, but as our emotional commitments, uh, our sources of hope, our sources of empathy, our sources of self-worth, and particularly in this domain. Yeah. Uh, and, of and healthcare. Of healthcare, and right. I, again, I'd say yeah. education, yeah. Yeah. But, but certainly in healthcare, and yet we treat the domain as if it were all about um, interests and resources. Mm-hmm. In other words, we treat it all as an e- as a purely as a domain in which value is a matter of economics. Yeah. Well, economics are important, but they're there to sustain the creation of other kind of value, and it's it's health and healing, and so figuring out how to translate those values into a resource for engagement and creativity and imagination and so forth seems to be what the big challenge and the opportunity is here. Wow. Thank you very much, Marshall Gans. Uh, listening to a lot of uh, uh, interesting concepts. I wish I could be quickly scribbling and uh, focusing and uh, talking all at the same time here. Um, so it's WIHI and this is Madge Kaplan and you were just listening to Marshall Gans. Kate Hilton on the phone from uh, South Carolina. Uh, actually, uh, across the pond, uh, not uh, not down south, uh, maybe at this very moment, but across the the pond you've been doing some interesting work and um, maybe you could help sort of provide a little bit of grounding for some of the things that Marshall was just talking about I'm particularly thinking about constituents um, kind of uh, leadership and I was also struck by sort of this uh, kind of emotion in some sense in terms of shared purpose now we don't have time of course to lead a whole seminar on this today so it's just going to be a flavor of some things but Kate can you kind of give us even some examples of uh, from some of your work in England? Sure. Um, We can start with England. Uh, Our colleagues at the NHS, Helen Bevan, Julia Taylor, Liz Carter, and their team, 
are um, really interested in seeing how to apply these, um, these principles in practice. So they have um, initiated something that they're calling the RNHS campaign, which um, has three primary outcomes. Uh, the first is around um, the quality of care, improving quality for patients within the NHS. Um, the second is around um, cost. As, as you probably know, um, the, the NHS is funded by the tax base in England, and with the world's recession, um, that that tax base has um, shrunk. And the um, based on the level of increase of healthcare costs, there's a funding gap between the anticipated level of increase and the actual, um, you know, funding that's a, that's available for a, a smaller increase. And so, given that gap, um, have to have a hard reality in how to approach, um, you know, the quality of care uh, for health for all citizens under a universal, um, uh, you know, health coverage by by the government through the National Health Service and. So instead of looking at this hard reality with a, an approach to, well, let's just make cuts, let's cut jobs, let's cut um, you know, services, let's make people wait longer, um, they have taken on, um, as Marshall talked about, the prophetic imagination, an approach to where challenge and hope meet, to work harder and, and differently together using this methodology to achieve quality improvement while reducing costs um, over the next three years um, to the level of a billion pounds and um, as part of the campaign. And then in addition to building up the leadership capacity among the people involved in the campaign, both within the NHS and outside the NHS, around whether it's around end-of-life care, around patient safety, around reducing waste, around unnecessary hospital admissions. So they have then um, recruited a wide variety of people in throughout the, throughout the country uh, in the different healthcare areas, but also in a, di a variety of different um, constituencies. So you've got folks coming together in one place who may work in, an, an, in a care home. Um, you've got folks who are nurses, uh, GPs, ambulance drivers, administrators, a wide variety of people who want to come together around the shared purpose of achieving clear outcomes for better quality care at lower cost while um, increasing leadership capacity to work on teams. As Marshall said, the a leadership definition of taking responsibility to enable others together to achieve purpose in what we see is always very much a, a shifting form of uncertainty as to what the future holds for us. Maybe and I could yeah, go ahead, Marshall. Uh -huh. Thanks, Kate. Uh -huh. I, I was on a coaching call yesterday with, uh, what was the town, Kate? Do you remember? Uh, Barnsley. What was it? Barnsley. Barnsley, Barnsley. in Yorks and Humber. <laughs> it's where? In Yorks and Humber. Okay, great. Uh, it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Here, right? I, uh, it was fascinating because, as Kate described, the, the, the NHS has been developing uh, uh, from a national team, regional teams, and then local leadership teams in these different communities to undertake these challenges. And we had a coaching call for an hour yesterday morning with the local team there that includes people with NHS, uh, uh, practitioners, it's a variety. And the, t the challenge they want to take on is about um, uh, chronic uh, illness and about um, enabling people to exercise more agency over their own care uh, and sort of shifting dependency into interdependency. And so what we're talking about is so how do we design a campaign uh, over the next uh, and their goal is uh, they have 80,000 people uh, that they need to engage with in this way uh, over the next several years, the goal being by next March, what was it, 1,100, Kate? 
Yep. Yeah, eleven hundred by by the end of March. Eleven hundred what? Patients. Oh, okay. Who who have to be engaged uh-huh. with in this way? Okay. So what they've been doing is thinking through. Well, how do we do this? Well, see, if you come at it from the organizing world, you're thinking, well. First, how do we measure our outcomes? I mean, you know, if you're if you're running an electoral campaign, you got votes or you don't got votes. Right. I mean, if you're running an advocacy camp, you you know, you passed the law or you didn't. It's very clear. And so we began to focus on what sort of a protocol or what sort of a contract could be developed between providers and patients that would specify a kind of code of mutual responsibility. Okay. But then, if you did that, how could that? actually become real. Well, then we began to think about, well, you can form uh, patient support groups uh, where it isn't just an individual and the system, but you're rather actually engaging people with one another in this on both sides of it. Uh, Well, then what kind of support would you need? Well, there's a whole set of technology that could make it a whole lot easier if people could do self-monitoring, monitoring from home, uh, other simple ways that people could learn to do these things. Now, this is a domain I'm entirely, this is entirely new to me, so I may use words that are the wrong and inappropriate words. I think it's a good thing that it's new to you. (laughs) Well, there is an advantage of legitimate ignorance, you know, when when we, that can be really a great benefit. Right. Uh, But that's just a little example of the kind of thinking um, and so, and this is a group at the local level, but because it's part of a national system, the idea then is to learn so that it doesn't happen as like an isolated little project somewhere that somebody maybe makes work, right. but as part of a national strategy so that the learning that we do, some will fail, some will succeed, but the result is to, to learn in the course of that how to make this work. Right. And that's what makes it really exciting. So their goal, 80,000, next whatever, but then there'll be other communities with similar kinds of goals going out in different ways. And from that, the, the other advantage to that is learning across contexts. In other words, to learn how to, um, you know, they, they make the distinction between algorithmic and heuristic problem solving. Yeah. Am I, I don't know if I'm out on thin ice here. Go but, for it. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, alg- algorithmic problem solving is about, well, there's a clear problem. We can identify it as X. Oh, well, then we sort through and we find solution 43. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what we apply. Mm-hmm. And so it's problem solving based on knowing. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Now, heuristic problem solving is like is problem solving based on learning, meaning uh, how do we define that problem? Uh, given that that's a novel problem, how do we go about learning how to deal with it? Right. It's not the domain of formula. It's the domain of framework and questions. And so that's, it seems to me, what we're involved in here because uh, is is learning how to solve these problems, but not with one person at the top, but by empowering a whole system, a whole community to be able to do that. Just think of the creative potential that that would bring to dealing with these kinds of challenges. It's very exciting. Very exciting. And um, I um, I think I have two quick questions, and in just a few minutes we'll open it up to everybody. One is, what does this have to do with uh, bringing forward new leaders and new leadership? Uh, I kind of played on that at the very beginning, and I sort of promised we'd talk about that some in, in the copy for this program. And I guess my second, maybe either one of you could tackle these two. The other thing is that part of what you're talking about I can just imagine some people saying, yeah, that seems right. 
but you know both sort of how do you make that happen and does it seem to fit in and and people's work structures are not necessarily defined in terms of the community and bringing all these people together to go through this kind of a process and so that's a lot of having to sort of bend the way we we do things um marshall happily happily (laughs) and then kate you can jump in go ahead no i I was just saying happily bending happily bending because the way we have been doing things doesn't exactly work that well. Right, right. Well, Kate, talk about it maybe even from the ground uh, perspective in the NHS. Are you looking for new leaders, really, uh, in, in all of this work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's actually one of the campaign outcomes. It's not just about quality and cost. It's about empowering and developing new leaders to work together on teams to take the work forward in an interdependent, distributed leadership model. So who so would be these new leaders? Who would, who, who, give me, who would they be? Who, would, who might well, <laughs> become leaders? Yeah. yeah, let me give you another example to make it really concrete. Mm-hmm. So um, in South Carolina, in, at McLeod Hospital uh, in Florence, um, we uh, began working with Dr. Mike Rose, who was really keen to get uh, every, every patient every time um, in any OR um, having the, the OR teams use checklists. And, um, and they started this, this uh, effort 18 months prior to, to our introduction. And the approach was very much one of compliance, that the senior leaders knew that this was something that needed to be done in terms of the quality of care. And so they said, okay, everybody, you, this is what you have to do. And did it happen? No. And why not? Well, it was a behavior switch. It was a, a question of, um, you know, I'm being told to do something versus um, I'm actually committed to doing it. And so um, Mike, Mike joined us for a, a distance learning course in which we teach this methodology, and, and as part of that is required to bring a team of diverse individuals to work together to um, practice the model. And that, that meant that he had uh, the chief of anesthesiology, he had nurses who were influential in the, um, in the hospital with other nurses, um, technicians, medical students, to think about how to, um, how to, how to adopt this model of um, working together on teams that are from one another seeking relational commitments to work together in a different way. And that's based, as Marshall said, on, on our, our values about what calls us to the work that we do. So they started having conversations that they had never had before between technicians, nurses, um, you know, OR staff, doctors, anesthesiologists, um, around um, what calls them to, to their work on, in the OR. And they were unearthing in one another things that they may have worked together for years that they didn't realize about one another's values, about why they care about patient quality, why they care about the work that they do. And they were building commitments through these relationships in new ways in which they were not only achieving the use of the checklist in terms of a real outcome in the OR, but they were also working together as a team in a way that they hadn't before, which was empowering for everyone on the team in terms of feeling that they had voice, that they understood why other people do what they do and had respect and a a certain mutuality of commitment towards this outcome. So, you know, the, the, the shift that they saw in beginning to recruit other members of ORs to work together on teams around this um, and using unearthing sort of their their commitment to the patient. So instead of having a, a senior leader sort of compliance approach, um, this was sort of uh, the senior leader said, "Yeah, definitely go for this. We're going to give you political cover, Mike. Go ahead and run." But instead, then the commitment was coming from the front lines, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they were then recruiting when they were inspired, recruiting other people to continue to join them in this way. 
See, just just yeah, to go add ahead, to that, Marshall. I mean, Thanks, Kate. Uh-huh. I mean, what's what's the character of what social movements and organizing are about? Are are um, they're they're rooted in voluntary commitment. In other words, um, it's like uh, you know, there's a distinction in the organizations literature between what they call compliance organizations and commitment organizations, and compliance organizations. You know, think of an assembly line, although even now they don't do it that way anymore because there's huge costs involved in, in, in enforcing compliance. When the real goal is to elicit commitment because we know that people will do better work, they'll be more creative, they'll do more responsible work if you can elicit commitment. And the whole idea of, of civic associations and organizing is eliciting voluntary commitment. Otherwise, you don't have anything. Uh, there's no structures. There's nothing. And so you develop then a whole toolkit of uh, methods of motivation, of structure, and so forth that are the result of mutual commitment, not simply the result of somebody in command giving you an order. Well, what you get then is a whole other level of engagement. And that's kind of... Um, that's kind of what's at work here, and I and I just wanted to say the other thing that that um, see we don't think of leadership as position. Um, <laughs> we think of leadership as practices. Yeah. Uh, and so you can practice leadership from lots of different positions. Uh, we all know people who are in positions of authority who are awful leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, we do. No. Uh, <laughs> We, we, we may have had a little contact with that. We also know people who right. exercise leadership without any formal authority. Yeah. So that's why I, the definition of enabling others to achieve purpose under, and then under con, uh, conditions of uncertainty and then those five practices, which we think constitute the core of what leadership practice is about, you can introduce at multiple levels and places, mm-hmm. uh, not simply from a position of command and control and, and authority. Very, very interesting. I'm going to ask one more question, and then uh, just to set get one more thing out there on the table, and then we'll open things up uh, for your questions and comments. Uh, what Kate implied in her story, and you've both been sort of alluding to it, is storytelling and narrative and finding out more about one another. One of the things I talked with Marshall and Kate about before we uh, – have uh, had our program today was uh, there's a lot of uh, focus right now I think rightly so on uh, practitioners learning much more from patients and patient stories and mm. all that can be learned from that mm. but I asked whether in fact we've sort of underutilized and haven't created enough space for stories from the practitioners themselves to mm. give people more room mm. to sort of talk about uh, their lives and why they're doing what they're doing uh, Marshall yeah it's huge uh, it's huge uh, see, I think uh, going back to that that definition of leadership and uncertainty, there's there's sort of two kinds of challenges that conf- that that we're faced with when we have to deal with with un- with the unexpected, with the novel, and so forth, which happens in this world all the time. One is strategic. It's kind of like how do we use our resources in a creative way to achieve the outcome. But the other uh, the other challenge is motivational. Uh, how do I find the courage? Uh, how do I sustain my hopefulness? Uh, how do I uh, how do I act in a spirit of empathy? And those uh, emotional or moral resources happen to be pretty important. <laughs> and in fact, I'd argue they're foundational to the strategic uh, capability that a person or a community or a group has. Now, our way of engaging with that and understanding that is through is through narrative, is through storytelling. 
not as like little extra, oh, tell a nice story, what's a good anecdote, mm-hmm. but as the fundamental way in which we learn to exercise agency in the world. In other words, we constitute who we are and the resources we draw upon to make choices when we're really confronted with choice, not when everything's clear and we know what to do. I'm not talking about that. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about when we don't know what to do, which is when we experience agency. Yeah. That's when we, that's when, and that's when our choices really matter. Now, the problem is that challenge can produce enormous fear. It can result in paralysis. It can result in alienation. It can result in self-doubt. If that's what's cooking, then our responses to challenge are going to be pretty dysfunctional. Um, So, on the other hand, if our response to challenge and the anxiety that appropriately accompanies challenge is rooted in a sense of hopefulness rather than fear, in a sense of empathy rather than alienation, in a sense of our own worth and well-being, our response is much more likely to be creative and exploratory and based in curiosity and learning. And so uh, my argument there is that if we are to actually exercise leadership ourselves, inspire it in others, we have to master the emotional content, not simply the cognitive. Because when you get right down to it, we map the world cognitively about mm-hmm. how it is, but the meaning we derive from the world is based on how we map it affectively. Yeah. It's the emotional valence of objects, people, and things. That's what really moves us. And so getting into relationship with that which really moves us, it's like uh, St. Augustine uh, said, it's one thing to know the good, another to love it. Loving the good is what actually enables us to act upon it. Knowing it is insufficient. Mm-hmm. And it's those those emotional resources that afford us the capacity to actually deal with these things. Mm-hmm. Well, narrative, because we can identify with the protagonist, the protagonist is confronted with the challenge of the unknown. We identify, we can therefore learn from the story, not simply the, the, the concept, haste makes waste. We experience it. It's experiential. And so the values that move us to act become translated into felt experience. That's when you're doing meaningful values work. And so when a group of physicians are telling stories, yeah. and you can drop out of all the technical stuff about why they're moved, you can feel the energy just go right up. Mm-hmm. And it's not an illusion. It's, it's an experience of why they're doing this in the first place. That then becomes a resource, a moral resource, for their own creativity and their capacity to engage others. That's where the storytelling comes in. And, uh, yeah. and so it's actually a core practice. It's not some little incidental thing. And here in the world of cognition and science, we tend to, well, science, I mean, there is a science to all this, but yeah. you know we tend to put all that on the side and say, well, that's that's soft, fuzzy stuff. Right. Well, that's soft, fuzzy stuff. I think uh, um, people, I'm sure, are very, very intrigued uh, and, and perhaps wondering how they might begin to kind of bring that to bear in some of the work that they are doing. So let's do this now. Um, I'm gonna let's go ahead, Jesse, and remind people how to use the chat uh, so they can ask questions and comments. One thing I promise to do is. Um, somebody asked if we could repeat those nice five practices. So I may, uh, as you're, uh, why don't we have Jesse remind people about chat, and then we'll have Marshall repeat those again. Jesse. Excellent. So to use the chat room, 
I've now opened it up for all participants. If we uh, type your message in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen and then select from the drop-down menu all participants, hit enter after you've typed your message, and it'll go out to everyone that's on our call today. Uh, we did have one question sneak in before, and uh, as I do, I'll get that in there. Uh, for either Marshall or Kate, does our educational system support or inhibit heuristic problem solving? Uh, and then if you could translate that into the healthcare system, I know you're, you're getting into that now. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, right. Well, I think in some sense you you were just talking about sort of some differences around kind of cognitive, you know, going after things in one way or another. Yeah. Well, and see, the, the relationship yeah. between narrative we were just talking yeah. about and heuristic problem solving right. is that heuristic problem solving involves creativity. Yeah. And creativity is is profoundly linked to the motivation we bring to, in other words, creativity you know, the factors that sort of inspire creativity, inspire is the accurate word, is depth of motivation and and uh, and so and hopefulness and all that. So there's a deep connection between doing the narrative work and creating the conditions for constructive heuristic learning. No, our educational system doesn't do much to teach heuristic learning. How about, let's make sure we don't forget this. Go ahead and repeat these five practices that you referred to earlier. Uh, and uh, I, I'll, I'll try and even take notes in here. <laughs> okay. All right. The, yeah. the, this is not going to be like the seven this. And, no. And, and, right. and it, it, there's no acronym. It doesn't <laughs> add up. It, no. But actually, they are all interdependent. Okay, That's sure. the idea of a framework. So yeah. it's not just a list of things. Yeah. The first is the values. It's the narrative work. It's, it's translating values into action. Uh, through uh, storytelling. And okay. so we learn how to tell a story of why I've been called. We learn how to tell a story about why we are called. That's the shared part. And then a story of what calls us to action now, a story of selfless and now. And we sort of have a, have a framework for that. So that's the first is the values work. Then comes the relational work. Uh, so we share some values. So now uh, let's learn enough about each other to see if we can make commitments to work with one another based not only on our values but the resources we bring to bear and the interests that we have in common. So that's the relational work. Now now we've got some shared values and we've got some relationships around shared commitments. How do we structure that in such a way that we can actually collaborate effectively? How do we structure authority? And structuring authority is critically important. Now, what we've been doing a great deal with is leadership teams, is team structure, interdependent teams, because we found in many efforts that uh, volunteer leadership resting on single individuals is extremely problematic. It's fragile. People burn out. Uh, or they try to do all the work themselves and drive everybody away and, you know, uh, and what we found, especially in the, in the Obama campaign, was that we could structure interdependent teams from the get-go where, where roles, where there's common purpose, shared norms, and roles established so that it's not a boss and a bunch of underlings, but it is, uh, and not shared leadership in some flaky way, mm-hmm. but like I'm responsible for coordinating the team, you're responsible for leader, leading our team on storytelling, you're responsible for leading our team on strategy, and so it's creating this, these interdependent structures. That's where we've put a lot of effort, figuring out how to do that, and then how to do it to scale. So it isn't just like in one place, but, but distributed through an organization. So that's the third piece about structure. Then comes strategy strategizing okay so now we've got a structure so now how do we how do we um, uh, strategize how to translate our resources into the capacity or power that we need to achieve outcomes 
understanding that strategy is a verb, not a noun, that it's not a five-year strategic plan. It's an ongoing process of adaptation to new information and circumstances, but that remains purposeful. And, uh, and finally, then how do we translate this, the fifth one, into action? Action meaning measurable, specific, observable ways in which we are changing the world, <laughs> okay. in which we are mobilizing and deploying resources. And I was taught in organizing, if you can't count it, it didn't happen. And, and I think that, so that's sort of the, 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 the cycle. And, and when we teach this in a workshop, this is exactly the sequence with which we teach it so that each builds on what went before and then it becomes a kind of iterative process. Thanks, Marshall. Very, very helpful. And I hope I just, it's a little bit of shorthand that I put in there, but I did type some things in on the chat. Anybody who is just tuned in by phone, by the way, and wants to get a copy of the chat, um, feel free to email us at info at IHI.org. Kate Hilton, I want to bring you back in. Somebody is saying in some sense they haven't quite heard what we're, or not sure they are uh, quite hearing the message about leaders. And um, and I, I think maybe implied, I, I'm going out on a limb here in this question, is are we in search of new leaders? Are we in search of different leaders? I mean, are we not getting what we need from our current uh, leadership? So as you look at the work, for instance, that you're doing at the NHS, um, in some sense, are we trying to now sort of create a different brand or breed of leadership? Um, I'm sort of trying to channel this person's question, and feel free, uh, person who asked it, um, Barbara, I believe that is, if you want to elaborate. Uh, but, Kate, can you talk, maybe make it a little bit more concrete? What, what kinds sure. of leaders are we looking for? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, for us, in terms of beginning to develop some capacity around using these tools as an approach to change, as a theory of change, which, by the way, isn't this, this theory of change, the, the organizing and social movement theory of change, it's, it is focused on collective action and on creating capacity where there was none before. It's not always the right solution for a problem. It's one solution. And, um, and so we're, we're looking in this in this approach to change for leaders who are willing to um, recognize that change doesn't just happen out there. It happens amongst ourselves. It happens within ourselves when we're pushed up against new ways of working together, of uh, mining ourselves and others for our values, um, of, of being courageous enough to take actions in new ways that, that haven't been taken before, and to be coachable. A, a big part of the, um, this work is learning, and especially because this, you know, bringing this approach to the healthcare sector isn't brand new, but it's certainly somewhat new. And so we're, we're learning all the time about how does it work, how does it feel. And um, because our approach is particularly based on modeling, um, so like Marshall said in the NHS campaign, you have a, a national team that models the practices that you just um, described, um, and then they're developing and coaching the, the area teams in the use of, of this form of leadership, and they're working with and coaching the local teams and the, the coaching structure is also built in and um, a part of the intentionality around developing the leadership. Um, with regard to where do they come from, they come from being asked. They come from asking someone for commitment to join you to do something you care passionately about and to find out whether that person has similar interests or resources that are different than yours but that, that, that you could use and that, in fact, you have some resources that you could share with that person so there's a mutuality of commitment between you and working together to achieve a shared purpose. 
So I would say yeah. largely that it's, you know, there, there are certain traits that we're looking for leaders with regard to the type, the type of leader, but as Marshall said, it's a practice, it's not a title. So yeah. it doesn't mean that you have to be um, a senior leader. Mm-hmm. We hope that senior leaders would give them some cover for this to occur in their, in their place, whether that's a hospital or a clinic or a school or a, a church, but, um, but that it's everyday people who are um, committed to, um, to the outcome. What we're trying to do is introduce more leadership practice to a system, to a community. So it isn't just about individuals. I think that's this idea of leadership as leaders who have individual traits and characteristics. I think it's time to sort of leave that behind (laughs) uh, because we have a much greater need for leadership than that. And so how we create organizational structures, that's why the team thing is so appealing because it, it, makes, it, it means that uh, there's, a, there's an interdependent exercise of these practices. It's not like I become an expert in all five practices and then I'm the super leader. That, you're not going to find that. But when you think in terms of team leadership, you, you say, oh, well, you're great at this, you're great at this. So together we're going to make this, this compo- we, we bring to bear the resources we need to have like a great basketball team. It's not everybody plays one position. And so it actually makes much better use of, of our human resources if we can get rid of this idea of unitary leadership. It, I mean, that is one way, but it's only one way to practice leadership. And so I think our biggest challenges in in introducing this whole approach to um, uh, systems like the NHS and others is the assumption is unitary leadership, right, which operates in a top-down way. And we're trying to say, wait a second, you can exercise leadership collaboratively without being flaky. You can exercise leadership collaboratively, and you can do it in a distributed way. And this was Kate's point about we think of our approach to leadership as being cask- as a cascading, a cascade. When we do our workshops and our training, the idea is for learners to become teachers. And so a core leadership practice is not just doing these five things, but coaching others in doing them. And that's how you get to scale. And that's how you build uh, uh, out. Uh, and like, this was basically, again, the approach we used uh, with, the, uh, with the Obama campaign mm-hmm. and how we built thousands of leadership teams across the country. Um, now, that was a focused, limited thing. Um, but it's exciting to think about how this could work in this setting. And I don't want to minimize the challenge of folks used to unitary top-down leadership who become very threatened by this kind of an approach. And so it's challenging because most people like change except when they realize it applies to them. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much, Marshall Gans. And uh, interesting question. Somebody is wondering if our speakers have ever used clinical microsystems, which addresses some of these issues. Mm. And maybe, Kathleen, uh, if you wanted to even elaborate on what what you're specifically alluding to there. and Shari has an interesting uh, comment. In nursing, we speak yeah. about transformational leadership, and it is awesome in theory, but what I often find yes. is that people become leaders after years of clinical practice. They are expert clinical nurses, but yes. not necessarily leaders, and uh, we do them a disservice by not preparing them adequately. Can you speak to how we can do a better job at preparing our leadership? And somebody was so specific and said, we have a new manager coming on board, and I'd like to see if we could get to this manager uh, quickly with some new ideas about leadership and and not have that manager step on anyone's toes, by the way. 
Well, I don't know about the toes. <laughs> I, I would give out toe guards, but uh, I, I think that might be, or else have band-aids around, but that's not yeah. an issue in this world. Yeah. But uh, no, I think it requires a major, a couple of major commitments. One, to training, to really taking seriously the fact that uh, we're just not, we don't just come out of the womb with these skills. I mean, they have to be learned. Uh in, in times past in our country, a lot of the training in these skills occurred through large civic associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but then as Bob Putnam and others have observed since about the 60s or 70s, those associations don't play a prominent role in our lives. And so we get used to this individualistic market operating or top-down operating because we aren't using, we aren't learning the collaborative skills that actually were so core to the evolution of our democracy. And so we have to Train. We have to provide training, support, coaching. That's a serious commitment. The second is we have to be prepared to examine the structures necessary to support that kind of an operation um, and, and design those that become the resources, the integrators, and so forth for it. Uh, so this is not just you read a book and now I'm an effective leader. That's not what we're talking about here. The other thing is that I think training as individuals is really uh, in, in, inadequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we learned also uh, when we did these Camp Obamas, uh, that we developed the leadership teams for that campaign, we brought people as teams. They go through the whole training as a team uh, because, you know, what typically happens with training is you go, you get some skills, you feel wonderful, you go back, and then the swamp consumes you. You have to create the structural support for the skills and the practices. I mean, again, it's a combination of head, hands, and heart. You have to equip conceptually, practically, and and motivationally how to sustain this sort of effort. And but it's not a mystery. Uh, it just has to be done. Thank you so much. Uh, somebody wants a comment on the cultivation of followership. <laughs> Yeah, I, you, uh, maybe you you I'm I'm not even quite sure. I mean, people who tend to follow uh, is that what we're talking about? Well, we tend to bifurcate the world into yeah. leaders and followers, right? And, and uh, you know, often I mean, followership. Uh, and I have a colleague, uh, mm-hmm. Barbara Kellerman's written a book about exactly that. I mean, we have to uh, learn how to collaborate with others uh, when others are taking initiative. Not just ourselves. I mean, it's. But what's interesting is you'll find in in these team structures that I may be exercising leadership in this one regard, and my role may be to support you in this other regard, and that's what I think of as followership as being a good constituent, uh, and understanding what's expected of you and what your role is. But it, that may be the role you play with respect to this task, but you may be playing a, a, a different kind of leadership role with respect to another. So, mm-hmm. Kate, I want thanks, Marshall. I wanted to ask a question um, about you know, in some sense, um, what you you really are now. I think in the in the NHS situation, sort of diving right into uh, some of the kinds of changes that are being sought uh, with respect to quality and costs and. And maybe I'll ask you and then, Marshall, you do have the advantage of sort of coming at this from a very, very different vantage point than a lot of people who are sort of trying to spring themselves loose from the ways they understand change. And um, do you see sort of a lot of the work at some level stuck or stalled or not sustainable in part because there has not been enough 
uh, sort of broadening of the meaning of uh, of leadership, etc. In other words, um, one of the constant frustrations that we hear about is that good projects come and good initiatives, and then it's a question of how is this all going to be sustained and. Uh, I, I guess I'd just love it if we could just take advantage almost of, of your position there. Kate? Sure. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what our, our colleagues in, in England are um, attempting to tackle. They have all kinds of wonderful technical solutions in hospital settings and care home settings and even in home settings, um, self-management of patients, et cetera, for you know, chronic conditions and all kinds of different um, approaches to quality improvements. And the question is, why, but why aren't they happening? Some of them seem so straightforward and simple. Why, why isn't there a behavior change? Okay. Or we might get a behavior change in one pocket or one place and it's not spreading to others. Why isn't that spreading, you know, especially if it's working? And, um, and so... The hypothesis, and again, it's a hypothesis because we're still at relatively nascent stages in the in the campaign work, but is to test test this approach to leadership um, in order to utilize the value base that we have about changing behaviors because of what we care about, because of why we want to have a patient that doesn't have to be readmitted to the hospital or even admitted to the ER in the first place. Um, how to work with the decision makers within the system and so then mapping out, well, how does the system work and who's making the decisions about people's care? Well, patients are, their family members are, um, potentially uh, someone, in the home, someone else in the home is or um, mm-hmm. in a care home. And so at that decision-making level, then how do we um, target those constituencies to make different choices? and to target them by inviting them to join in an effort that also connects them to their own values about their health and their, and their maintenance of their health or their prevention of um, uh, health issues, particularly in chronic settings, um, uh, you know, so that certain symptoms aren't um, uh, you know, causing continual strife. And, and so the approach is to then mobilize, use this as a mobilization strategy to create capacity where there hasn't been any in spreading some of these technical solutions a lot further. All right. Well, that makes, you know, uh, a lot of sense. Thanks. I'm, I'm sort of, as we kind of get closer and closer to the top of the hour, I see that somebody has provided some uh, interesting uh, thoughts about uh, clinical microsystems, and I appreciate all that because we're probably not going to be able to uh, get into it. Um, maybe a last, I'll give sort of some last words here, uh, perhaps to Marshall, uh, which is uh, somebody says, can you comment on the need for leaders to know something about themselves in conjunction with structural supports for leadership. Yeah, how about that? More than something. Yeah. <laughs> That's why in in our work we begin with uh, we begin with the narrative work and we begin first with uh, uh, with working with people to learn how to articulate the story of their own calling. Right. Uh, what is it that moved them to uh, do? And, and the nice thing about this story framework is, again, it's not a formula, it's a framework is that it draws your attention to certain uh, sources in your own experience. A story is structured as a challenge, a choice, and an outcome. And so we ask people to consider choice moments in their lives that were significant for them. And I want to say it's not therapy. Because therapy, you're looking for sources of dysfunction. Uh, here we're looking for sources of function, okay. of value. And, uh, and it takes some reflective work 
but we get there. And so when we train people in this, they actually learn how to do a two-minute story of why they were called. Mm-hmm. Two minutes. And they learn then how to elicit other people's stories. And so we develop this coaching capacity in, in small groups uh, as the foundation. Uh, but then, then it's got to go from my story, why I've been called. Now I've got to move over and learn your story so that I can see if there are stories that can articulate our shared calling. Mm-hmm. And then it's got to move to the third one, which is given those values that are reflected in those stories, what is a challenge that requires urgent action? What's our source of hope for that? And what kind of action are we called upon to take? So it's self-us now. It's, um, it's you said not self-us and now. Yeah, and it's not brand new. It's actually the conversation Moses had with God at the burning <laughs> bush, if you think about it. Uh, the, the first question yeah. he asks is, why me? And then who are you and these people? And couldn't this wait a little bit? Yeah, right. <laughs> Very good. Well, on that note, uh, thank you, Jesse, for typing that in. Wow. This hour went by very quickly. Um, you folks who joined us today, I think, are part of what uh, sort of what, what is trying to be built here. And we hope you will continue this conversation. Uh, somebody asked here about recommended reading, and maybe we'll uh, just pick a few things uh, from Marshall and Kate and get that into our resource document. A reminder that that document will be posted on our web pages tomorrow, along with the audio uh, from today's program. A major thanks to Kate Hilton in South Carolina today, and to you, uh, Marshall, and thanks to all of you who sort of brought some of your prophetic imagination uh, to the table. Uh, next up on WIHI November 18th, uh, we're going to dive into nursing, uh, looking at nursing's new roadmap uh, with some of the folks who've been involved with the new report from the Institute of Medicine on the future of nursing, as well as a very uh, celebrated educator, Patricia Benner. So we've got Donna Shalala, Linda Burns Bolton, and Pat Benner uh, coming on board on the 18th. Uh, I want to just remind you when you download, I mean, when you log off. If you join by WebEx, you can download the chat. You can download any slides that you'd like. And if you only join by phone today and you want some of that material, please uh, send an email to info at IHI.org. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. We have music that opens and closes the program and their original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Zapasoa on piano. It continues to be my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thank you, Marshall Gans. Thank you, Kate Hilton. Thank you, our participants. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Good day.